Hello everyone and welcome to your new Tudor Travel Show. I am so excited to be here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Sarah Morris and in the Tudor sphere, as I like to call it, I'm also known as the Tudor Travel Guide. Um, some of you may know that I run a blog by the same name and that blog is dedicated to being your personal companion to the castles and the houses and manors and palaces of 16th century England, Scotland and Wales. But here we are with this new radio show and I now not only get a chance to write and create podcasts about what I love but I get the chance to share all these wonderful places with you as a regular part of this new travel show. And so, what do I hope you're going to get? Well, uh, my plan is this is going to be crammed with information and inspiring ideas and tips for visiting places that have connections to Tudor history. And there's going to be a couple of regular slots. So in the first one, which I'm calling A Curator's Tale, we will be interviewing people, curators, who either have or have responsibility for looking after some of these amazing historic places and artefacts. And we're going to be getting the inside story on these glorious buildings and these objects um, and really get behind the scenes and find out about their provenance, where they came from, what their meaning and impact has. So I'm really looking forward to that. We've got some great people lined up. Another regular feature will be that I'm going to be talking to fellow bloggers about their favourite Tudor places and again getting some top tips and um, some background knowledge on these individual properties. So um, who do we have in today's show? Well first of all we're going to be talking to Jonathan Foyle, architectural historian who I've recently collaborated with quite extensively around the rediscovery of the Anne of Cleves heraldic panels. And Jonathan's going to be talking to us, to us as part of the curator's tale slot and he's going to be um, telling us all about Cardinal Wolsey's Hampton Court Palace, how and why it was built and just how did that early building look way back at the beginning of 16th century before Henry VIII got his hands on it. And then in terms of our blogger spot, I'm going to be talking to fellow blogger uh, Deb Royal from the Tudor Times. Now, Deb and I recently went to Knoll in Kent to listen to a wonderful lecture by Simon Thurley, who, by the way, is going to be one of our featured guests in the new year, which I am so excited about. Um, now, during our time together, uh, she told me that actually Knoll was one of her favourite locations. And so... I decided to invite her on the show to ask her about why that building had so captured her heart. And we'll hear a little bit more from Deb a little bit later on in the show. But for now, let's relax, listen to some glorious Tudor music before we get on with the next bit. <laughs> Thank you. 
So that was My Lady Carey's Domp and it was published in England circa 1524. Now that makes me think that maybe Lady Carey was Mary Boleyn. I'm sure there are some musical virtuosos out there amongst you who know the answer to that question and if you do I would love to hear from you. And you can contact me via email on sarah at thetudortravelguide.com but don't worry I'll repeat how you can get in touch with the show at the end but for now let's crack on and we're going to get right into the first in our series of A Curator's Tale and I have the pleasure and delight of talking today with Jonathan Foyle he is an architectural historian and, as I mentioned at the top of the programme, someone who I've collaborated with quite extensively in the quite recent past in our um, amazing and fun-packed and incredible adventure around the dis rediscovery, perhaps is a better word, of the Anne of Cleves heraldic panels. If you want to know more about that, check out the blog. However, let's get on to Jonathan. By way of introduction, let me tell you a little bit about Jonathan. He has an MA in the History of Art from the Courtauld Institute, where he trained as an architect. And to quote Jonathan himself, he is, quote, obsessed, unquote, with historic buildings. Yes, I know that feeling. And I know, dear listeners, many of you will know that too. Um, now, this was evident from the very early stages of Jonathan's career. Uh, he spent some time initially at Canterbury Cathedral uh, as an architect, surveying architect architectural details of the cathedral. But more importantly and pertinent to us is that he joined historic royal palaces where he became curator of Hampton Court Palace. And there he stayed in post for a period of about eight years. And during that time, Jonathan undertook a research project in the early history of Hampton Court Palace. And that resulted in a doctorate from the University of Reading in 2002. Jonathan, of course, is also an award-winning BBC broadcaster. Um, I've seen him dangling off the side of buildings, um, abseiling, looking at the architectural details. And of course, many of us are familiar with Jonathan getting down in the trenches in Time Team and being the Tudor expert on many of their episodes. So 
In today's show, we're going to be hearing more about the research project that Jonathan undertook whilst he was curator at Hampton Court Palace. And I know many of you uh, have visited Hampton Court or indeed it is on your bucket list. And so it's always fascinating to hear more about this history of this amazing building. And so without further ado, I'd like to welcome Jonathan to the show. Hello, Jonathan. Lovely to be speaking to you again. Thanks for having me on, Sarah. Oh, no, no worries. And um, I was just saying to the listeners that um, you've had a wonderful and varied past. And I know in your own words, you're somewhat obsessed with, with historic buildings. And we're going to be talking about one of those today. And that's Hampton Court Palace. That's right. Yeah, I worked at Hampton Court for eight years. It was a great privilege. And um, uh, so I, I, I had an office as curator of historic buildings there, mm. which really involved um, both research, but also guidance on various repair programs, that kind of thing. And I did a PhD while I was there on reconstructing Thomas Wolsey's palace, that we think of as Cardinal Wolsey. But in fact, he began it in anticipation of being a cardinal in 1515. Ah, I see. I, I wasn't quite aware of that. So that's interesting in and of its own right. And I know when we talked about um, our conversation today, I was fascinated when you say I'd like to talk about Wolsey's early palace, because, of course, you know, we know a lot about Henry VIII and what Henry VIII might have done there. But I, I for one, am really curious about its early origins and what you found out. What? So... Yeah. yeah, I'm a bit annoyed by Henry VIII's superior branding because he gets the credit <laughs> for everything, you know, and you scratch under the surface. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, Professor John Guy, University of Cambridge, um, we worked together a couple of times, and one of the, a phrase of his always uh, uh, rings true with me, and he says that the, the winners get to write the story. Mm. And in this case, the survival of Henry VIII's work accounts and the destruction of Wolsey's legacy along with the dismantling of the catholic church to me that's one of the things that i thought that this, this picture is not right hampton court's always sold on henry the eighth but what did he inherit what did he take over and adjust and reassemble and i thought there's more to this than meets the eye and so that was that your inspiration for doing that particular phd thesis you really wanted to strip it right back and go back to the origins and see what had been there beforehand yeah, there were two things, really. And um, one is that I really love um, late medieval buildings. Um, and I think that they are so often used to demonstrate the best of British architectural culture. You think about King's College Chapel in Cambridge, for example. I mean, there, there's never been a period in history when people haven't admired it. Henry VII's Chapel in Westminster Abbey. There's extraordinary, delicate vaults that seem to defy physics. Um, but this sculptural richness as well, the colour. Um, and so there's, there's a great virtue in the late medieval culture. But of course, we use medieval as a pejorative. Mm. And Henry VIII did his darndest to smash the legacy of a thousand years of Catholic art and culture. I don't come at this from a religious background at all. I do come across it from a sense of what have we lost? And if we, if we better understand... The, the what's left, the fragments that are left, then I think we can appreciate the full cultural richness of that period. So that's really what drives me, is that I feel that in our secular age, we, we're missing a lot of understanding of really some of the great cultural achievements in Britain. And looking at Wolsey's Hampton Court in the, in the years before the Reformation, 
Um, to me, that has a whole language which Henry VIII has tried to obscure. So, you know, some people like crosswords, some people like jigsaws. I like trying to pull apart buildings and figure out what picture they're trying to tell us. Mm, yeah, and so um, tell, can you tell us a little bit about um, how Wolsey came to acquire Hampton Court Palace? What's the story there and what kind of building was there in the beginning? Sure. Well, this was a grange of the Knights Hospitaller, who had their English headquarters at St. John's Clerkenwell, and they raised money to be sent to Rhodes um, in order to pay for accommodation and food and so on for pilgrims who were making their way to the Holy Land. And the Knights Hospitaller funded that by having a number of granges set across Britain. Mm -hmm. And uh, Hampton Court was one of the middling-sized granges, and it used that fertile land on the gravel plains of the Thames to graze sheep and grow crops and send the proceeds then on to Clerkenwell. And this place was visited by Henry, uh, sorry, Edward III in the 14th century, who uh, apologized for burning part of it down and, and paid for it to be rebuilt. That, that must have been an evening to remember. Mm -hmm. um, and in the late 15th century, its position between Westminster, which was, of course, the seat of English monarchy until the Great Fire in 1513 burned much of it. Um, the, the position between Westminster and Windsor, which never really went out of favor, um, was ideal, um, not just for grazing sheep, but for courtiers to be positioned to move between London and the Thameside palaces. So in the 15th century, there's a man called Wode who rented that land on a lease from the Knights Hospitaller. And then um, there was Sir Giles Daubeny in 1495, Henry VII's right-hand man at that time. And he took a lease to rebuild and extend the Hospitaller's buildings. Uh, so Hampton Court was built by Wolsey in January 1515, uh, to, a, to really an unprecedented scale uh, as, a, as a set piece for a man of the church. And the reason for that, it became increasingly clear through this process of research, is that this was exactly the time when Raphael was painting the Vatican stanze. This was the point of the great resurgence of Rome under those enlightened Renaissance popes, mm. where art and culture were winning hearts and minds across Europe into a kind of reformation of the papacy where the building of St. Peter's, the creation of, of cardinals across Europe with palaces on a similar scale to those mm. buildings emulating ancient structures in Rome was setting new standards. And part of that was Thomas Wolsey, who was anticipating becoming a cardinal in 1515, constructing a palace of such astonishing scale in a visible position between Windsor and London that anyone who came past it would be in awe of this man of the church representing a European power structure as the right-hand man of a young, inexperienced king. And so that's really fascinating to hear about that background, what was going on in Rome and with the Renaissance. And, and so those ideas, those visions, those thoughts were filling Wolsey's head at the time when he stood in front of his... Hampton Court Palace to be, thinking about what he wanted to create there. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, we, we have some stereotypes of the early Tudor monarchs, and Henry VII, in kicking things off, is often celebrated by people who basically have looked at the history of white man's administration in the past and said, well, he's modern because he looked after money very well. Well, you know, behind that stereotyped picture of old history 
is a character of um, immense cultural richness in Henry VII. You know, one of the first things he did when he came to the throne was to repeal Richard III's act against Italians, which is basically a complaint about their superior financial skills in London. Uh And uh, the Italians imported not just luxury wares like wine and silks and so on, but they were the great ambassadors between the papacy and England were the Italian mercantile bankers and their families and the Mm. cardinals who they serviced. And so the reason Henry VII did that is because one of his um, solutions to his shaky claim to the throne was to be in league with the papacy. And so he set up in Rome the office of what's called Cardinal Protectors of England. And that meant that English ecclesiastes went to live in Rome, and I wouldn't really call it cash for questions, but it's a reasonable approximation of being in the papal curia to represent English interests. Mm. At the same time, he had Italian bishops come to England so that the Bishop of Bath and Wells was Adriano Castellesi, one of the great humanists of Renaissance Italy, was um, in Somerset. And the same accounts for um, Worcester, which is... um, um, Silvestro Gili, for example, mm. and there are numerous um, bishops, Italian bishops in England. And Wolsey was, as Archbishop of York from 1514, the inheritor of a household who um, served Christopher Bainbridge, who lived in Rome and died in Rome, and you can find his marble memorial slab in the English College in Rome. So there is this immense Mm. uh, cultural exchange between England and Italy, Mm. which was fully existing by the time that that Wolsey took over the mantle. And we think of him as an Englishman and a a boy from Suffolk and so on. But actually, he's a European character. There's mm. no question about that. And that's what Hampton Court represents. A big picture thinker. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> and so when, you know, as he set about changing Hampton Court back in 1515, you talked about, you know, the kind of in very broad terms, the type of grand palace, a kind of statement building he was trying to create. In terms of the actual plan of the building, you know, do you think that that was... Um, sort of preconceived in his in, in his mind, he knew exactly wanted what he wanted to build there, and what was that? Well, you could basically design Hampton Court on an etch a sketch because it it's based on ninety degree angles. It all all the lines are perpendicular to each other, and when you look at the plans of evolved medieval palaces in Britain, they don't generally take that form. You know, you have bits added on, and it's it's the sum of its parts. Mm. Um, You might look at places like Knoll in Kent, built by um, Archbishop Borchier of Canterbury um, about 50 years before Hampton Court. And you'll see a certain precedent there in a number of courtyards um, Mm. added to each other with a hall as the essential communal focus and then increasingly private rooms leading beyond it. I mean, there is a way in which English palaces um, did develop before Wolsey began Hampton Court. Now, the more important point was that in 1510, there was a book produced in Rome by a man called Paolo Cortesi, who was of the circle of Adriano Castellesi, Bishop of Bath and Wells, another great humanist thinker. But Cortesi remained resident in the area around Rome. Now, his book was called um, De Cardinalatu, really um, how to be a cardinal. And it's mm. like a Haynes motor manual for the man in red, you know? <laughs> yes. A to Z for the man in red. And chapter Brilliant. two was um, how to build the ideal cardinal's palace. 
And what's interesting for anybody who's looking at the thought uh, process of European cardinals as they plan their residences in the early 16th century is to look at the little taglines, the headings that that, uh, uh, Cortese gives them. And one of them, for example, is that you must have a chapel attached to the hall so that your audience can hear mass. Now, giving good mass is the hallmark of a worthy cardinal. So the mm. soundscape becomes important. Mm-hmm. Another uh, winning headline is that you must build your palaces so big that no one dare invade them. And there is this certain militancy in the defense of the papacy and and its representatives that pervades architecture. And you look at the great Roman palaces and suddenly they occupy entire city blocks and they have crenellations around the top and some of them have towers back in the 15th century and they're made of brick. And this is not out of place in Rome because, of course, the ancient Romans built in brick and masonry. And Hampton Court is of the same kind of material. Mm. When you approach it, it has a moat. It has a big crenellated gatehouse. And so that's not out of sync with the instructions from papal Rome. But the closer you get, the more you start to see specific themes that come from the culture and thought of the Renaissance era, looking back to ancient Roman models of emperors. And um, so there on the gatehouse of Wolsey's palace are roundels Mm -hmm. in terracotta of the various Roman emperors. Now, there's a specific extract in Cortese's book that says that you should show the the good and evil doings of Roman emperors within your courtyard. You know, this should be a, almost like a schoolyard for instructing <laughs> people on how um, emperors behave themselves well or badly. Mm. And the point, the reason, the central reason he did that is that the Renaissance papacy saw themselves as the Pope being the emperor and the cardinals being the senators. So that mm. was their inheritance really, of the ancient world, which they were reforging for a new Christian era, which would see comparable grandeur, you know, with the dome of St. Peter's looking for all the world like the dome of the um, Pantheon and so on. Mm. And that, therefore, Wolsey's Hampton Court was playing the same game as the cardinals of of modern Rome, but in a slightly different guise, looking back to some of the forms of medieval England. He had to play, in the end, to audiences not just in England, but traveling from eight, nine hundred, a thousand miles away, uh, who would, when they arrived, understand they were seeing a variation on a theme. Mm. So they're almost home from home in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> um, so your research itself, what, what were you setting out to investigate, Jonathan? So there are um, several thousand pages of works accounts left by Henry VIII, who took the palace over in 1528 and remodelled it to suit himself and his parade of queens. The first thing that Henry did, by which to judge his priorities, mm. was to rebuild his bedroom and stick a bathroom um, served by a, a, a furnace to uh, to heat the water and they have a study next to it. Basically, his ensuite bathroom was the first thing he did, much as we might today. And then he improved his kitchens, again, much as we would. Um, these are secular priorities. Mm-hmm. But for Wolsey's priorities, we've only got really 150 or so pages of works accounts to go by because the rest were destroyed. But looking through these works accounts, it struck me that there are certain descriptions which I thought had not really fully been noticed. And... Um, it, it, it was, in the end, a limited amount of material. It, it, it explains that the first thing Wolsey did 
was uh, bought um, things like cucumber uh, seeds for the garden so that you could get vegetables fully developed by the time you moved in. That's a very smart thing. Yeah. Um, but, it, it, but it didn't go into, of course, it will never explain the reason why I'm building my palace in this form and with those details is to convey that. You have to work that out yourself. And in order to start with these meager works accounts and figure out exactly what Wolsey built was to go back to the drawing board, literally, with plans of the palace and then try and figure out how a designer might have set a compass point on his sheet of parchment when he was laying out the design for, for, for Hampton Court and on what basis the buildings seem to conform to a geometric scheme. I mean, if it is... Uh, looking like it was designed on Etch-a-Sketch, that's because it represents the method of the person who planned it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when you start to go through that process, you realize Hampton Court is more or less set out on the lines of two octagonal stars set side by side. It is two great squares in which stars are set. Mm -hmm. And the buildings, the, 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 the ranges of the base court, uh, very neatly occupies um, one of those two um, stars, you see, mm. and the width of the moat, the centre of clock court, the line of his long gallery, even the, the bottom line of the inherited kitchens all play a part of this scheme, which you can then see in Henry VIII's palaces when he starts building after 1516, the same scheme is repeated. But it doesn't happen before, and that's, that, that taught me that Wolsey's really setting the agenda. Um, he is the great patron. He's um, by 1515, um, Wolsey is in his early 40s. You know, he's really at his, at his intellectual uh, peak. Mm. And Henry, Henry's still 23 and um, 24 and basically having a good time. Mm -hmm. uh, looking forward to being um, Henry V all over again if he can just beat France, you know. Mm -hmm. Those are his preoccupations. He doesn't build much. He's not really a great artistic patron. It's people like Wolsey who set the agenda. So using this, this plan, which in fact Italians use a lot in their buildings, centralized buildings of Leonardo use exactly the same motif. But if you follow the lines that are built along, along this scheme, then you start to notice other things, such as the windows that belong to those buildings are cut in a different way to those we know are documented by Henry VIII. And this is down to the fact that Wolsey had a couple of masons. Um, there was um, um, William Virtue who worked for him, mm. uh, who died in 1528. And that's exactly the same year Henry takes the palace mm -hmm. over. So, so rather conveniently, um, Henry's mason is not the same as Wolsey's mason, and they use different templates. And once you spot the difference, you can quickly see which windows belong to Wolsey's buildings and which, therefore, to Henry VIII. And when you put that whole thing together, uh, mutually reinforcing evidence, it becomes crystal clear, in fact, how much Wolsey established and how much we've, credit we've given Henry VIII for, frankly, nicking Wolsey's palace. And that's where we're going to leave the conversation with Jonathan today. But to fear not, tune in next week and you'll hear the second part of the conversation in which Jonathan will take us time travelling to find out exactly how Wolsey's Hampton Course Palace would have looked at its zenith. But for now, we're going to take a little musical interlude and I'm going to play you one of my favourite uh, Tudor songs and that is Pastime with Good Company. In this instance, it's recorded by Weights and Measures. So sit back and enjoy the music.
come to our second and final feature for the show and in this regular slot I'm going to be talking to a range of different Tudor enthusiasts and bloggers about some of their favourite Tudor properties and as I mentioned at the top of the show today's turn is Deb Royal from the Tudor Times and she is going to be sharing with us her love of Noel in Kent. By way of a little bit of background, for those of you who are not familiar with Knoll, um, there has been a house on the site of the current property since the medieval period. However, the core of the house that you see today was originally commissioned by Archbishop Bourchier in the mid to late 15th century, around the time of the Wars of the Roses. It became a property of the See of Canterbury and was used by successive archbishops, including the likes of Archbishop Wareham and Archbishop Cranmer, who many of you will be familiar with through your reading of the Tudor period. And to one extent or another, um, each of the occupants added to the maintenance or the glory of the house. And today we find a stately building that's surrounded by incredibly beautiful parkland. So hello Deb and welcome to the Tudor Travel Show. Thank you for dropping by today. Hi, good to be here. So we are here to talk about Knoll in Kent um, and I know we've been talking about Knoll and I know it is one of your favourite Tudor locations and, and what I wanted to know was 
was why why do you find it so interesting oh no um I guess I've always loved it. I first saw it 20 years ago when I first arrived in the UK and I was quite blown away by it. I hadn't really seen anything quite like it before. I think, I mean, the thing about Knoll is it's setting really. It's in this enormous parkland and the way you get to it is uh, you sort of go down into a valley and then come up onto the plateau and and the house sort of unfolds before you. Although Mm. I say house, I think you can't, really talk about Knoll without mentioning the sort of sheer scale and size of it. It's one of the top five largest houses in England and I think it's said to cover four acres. It's just enormous. But it doesn't really look or feel like sort of the later Elizabethan prodigy houses like Longleat or Burley or even Hardwick Hall where they have a size and grandeur of as sort of one building. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've seen Knoll described as it sort of looks more like a medieval hill town or a university college clustered around a series of courtyards. And I think that's a really good description. Mm. Um, It is a beautiful location, isn't it, Noel? I mean, the parkland is absolutely stunning. Filled with deer, roaming around, looking magnificent. And then this building that's sort of perched on this plateau, which I know Henry VIII referred to, well, he liked Noel a lot, uh, eventually got his hands on it from the archbishop <laughs> but he talked about it's you know it's it's I can't remember the exact expression but you know it's it's fulsome earth and it's clean air it's beautiful I completely agree with you well and you also get a sense even today and I imagine it was so much more like this 500 years ago but even today you get a sense of remoteness as soon as you sort of move into the parkland and um you do very much feel that you're quite removed from the rest of the world. And that that's actually really pertinent, isn't it? Because um, Knoll was, was known as a bit of a retreat house for the Archbishops mm-hmm. of Canterbury, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. And in fact, um, I think Archbishop Bouchier, uh, he, I mean, he, he built it for himself, first of all, before he gave it to the See of Canterbury. And um, yes exactly that's where they used to go I think and spend time away from court yeah in contrast interestingly to Otford which is just four miles down the road also owned by the archbishops of Canterbury Mm. but that was very much um a place to entertain so it was almost like the the public persona of the archbishop of Canterbury you know there were uh, you know the the entourage for the field of cloth of gold passed through there it it was it was the place for feasting and and for for entertaining but but Noel was different. Noel, mm. to say, much more intimate. There's more peaceful. So, I mean, I think that's on. one of the things I, I love about Noel, really, is um, <clears throat> though it's so large and impressive, and when you're sort of standing on the outside, you see this, this enormous building or series of buildings before you. Actually, once you move through and into into the first courtyard and the second courtyard, it does have a number of courtyards, but... And the rooms themselves, although large, they do feel a lot more intimate and and sort of smaller and more intimate than actually you find in a lot of other Tudor places. Um, and the most obvious one for me, and actually one of my favourites, is the mm. Brown Gallery. So Noel doesn't have one large long gallery. It has sort of three small lure 
uh, long galleries and the Brown Gallery, which was built by Wareham in, in the West Wing. Um, I think that does have a very special vibe for me. It's very warm and calm and peaceful. And um, it's also one of the few rooms that you can actually see that still looks like it would have done during the Tudor period. Okay, so it's an a really authentic and original room. Mm, mm. Um, that it's been it's been renovated um, as part of, or oh, I shouldn't say renovated. That's the wrong word. <laughs> um, uh, it's been part of the conservation project, which um, has been undertaken at Knoll recently. So it's now uh, been opened again. Um, but it definitely is is quite authentic in its look and its feel, its location, everything about it really, and is one of the few, along with the Great Hall, that would be recognisable to people from the Tudor period. Yeah. And the Great Hall's stunning, really, isn't it? We were there just this last week and had a lovely open roaring fire crackling in the grate. And um, I understand this Christmas time, it's going to be dressed for Christmas. So no doubt it'll be looking beautiful. Be wonderful. It will be, yeah, look absolutely wonderful. Is there any particular, I know you've talked about the Brown Gallery being one of your favourite spaces in Knoll. Are there any other top tips of things to really look out for or places to go or things to see that you would like to highlight for the listeners? Um, well, I think the, the guided tours that are coming in next year, um, there's some behind-the-scenes tours. In particular, there's one that's going to the attic and there's another one that shows in the gatehouse parts of the Tudor palace that you really can't see today. I mean, recent research has shown that there's much more of the original Tudor palace than was originally thought, um, but you can't see today any of the Tudor brick that we always associate with the period, mm. um, apart from on these tours, which will give much more of a sense of um, what the original Tudor building was like. Mm. Yeah, it's a bit confusing, isn't it? Because you expect to see that lovely rich Tudor red brick and actually there's none to be seen anywhere, but um, it's there. It's just hidden. A palace hidden behind uh, some later facades, one assumes. Yes, which is another thing I love about it, really, the thought that it's still there hidden away within the existing building. But overall, the footprint of Knoll as it is now would have been familiar to the likes of Archbishop Cranmer or, or Henry VIII. It's really more of the kind of the, 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 the facade itself, which looks a little bit different, but the footprint itself is exactly the same, isn't it? Or yes, yes. exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, an- another, yes, it gives you a good feeling about it. Yeah, a real survivor of time. Yes, yes. So, Deb, um, for... Uh, folk out there who want to visit Knoll, what would be your, I know you've already talked about the Brown Gallery and how you, much you love it, but what would be your top tips for things to see or places to go or, or how to get there, in fact, for people listening today? Sure, Sarah. Well, um, first of all, I'd say it's an easy day trip from London for those people that aren't sort of uh, living or staying or visiting nearby. Um You can walk from the station, but I'd strongly recommend getting a taxi because um, the wonderful parkland we've talked about takes a very long time to walk through. So um, it's a long walk. So definitely take a taxi from the station. Secondly, I'd say look out for the guided tours that are starting next spring. There's some uh, behind the scenes tours that will go into the attic 
parts of the gatehouse and other areas which you can't see at the moment. And these are the areas where there's some wonderful glimpses of the old Tudor building itself. Um, and then finally, if you are lucky enough and do have time to stay for a weekend or a couple of days, I'd combine it with a visit to Sissinghurst. So Sissinghurst has the, um, it's got the connection with Knoll and that Vita Sackville West, who was one of the Sackvilles from Knoll, actually bought it with her husband, Harold Nicholson, and they've um, created this wonderful garden there. The the house itself at Sissinghurst is an Elizabethan gatehouse, and so you do get to see your Tudor brick. If you need to see Tudor brick, that's um, at Sissinghurst, but definitely worth combining a visit to Knoll and a visit to Sissinghurst. Excellent. And I just might lob in also just reminding people to perhaps make the short journey along to Otford. There's not oh, much yes. left of the palace there. There's just a part of the gatehouse range and a kind of a red brick octagonal tower. But it was such a significant site and almost like the sister house to Noel that it's worth going by. Definitely. So, Deb, thank you so much for dropping by today and sharing your love of Noel. And um, for you guys out there, please do remember to check out the Tudor Times at www.tudortimes.co.uk. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Deb, very Bye. much. And um, no doubt we'll speak soon. Thank you. Bye. That's a big thank you to Deb Royal from the Tudor Times. And before we go today, we've got time for one more final piece of music, which is called Now is the Month of Maying by Thomas Morley. It's a jaunty little number, so I hope you enjoy it. to the end of today's show. However, next time I'd also like to hear from you. So I'm inviting you to post any comments or questions or ideas you may have for future episodes on any of my social media channels. You can find me on Facebook at The Tudor Travel Guide or on Twitter at The TT Guide. That's capital T-H-E, capital T, capital T, capital G, U-I-D-E. Or alternatively, you can email me at sarah at thetudortravelguide.com. And I'm going to be featuring some of your questions, as many as possible, and hopefully finding out some answers to them at the end of every show. I know there's loads of you out there who love hitting the road and exploring Tudor locations, so I can't wait to hear from you. But that's it for this week. So I'll see you next time. And in the meantime, happy time traveling.